want to uh, start just by throwing out a few statistics for you. See what kind of a picture these paint. Uh, the Harvard Business School a few years ago uh, published a study looking at social trends. Uh, it's an American study, but I think the results wouldn't be too different here. Between 1985 and 1999, here's what they found. Uh, people spending an evening at home uh, with their neighbours, having their neighbours over, was down 33% during that time. People having family dinners, down 33%. People having friends over, down 45%. And this one's interesting, a willingness to make new friends was down 33% as well. So not only are we not socialising as much, we're not willing to make new friends and enter into those social circles as much. Uh, around about the same time, the American Sociological Review uh, published an article looking at similar trends. They found that the average person, uh, in the States at least, has two close friends, which is down from three in 1985. So it's slowly falling, I suppose. By now it's probably down to one, and then it'll be just you by yourself. Uh, and they found 25% of people say they have nobody to confide in. Not a single person that they could be close to. Uh, what, what is the picture that these statistics paint? A culture that is incredibly lonely. That we are becoming more and more isolated. Uh, we don't have as many close friends as we used to. We don't have people that we really feel know us. We don't have people that we feel like we know them. People that we can really just take off our masks and be real with. As a culture, we are becoming more and more lonely, more and more socially disconnected and isolated and removed from people. We might hang out with them, we might be in social circles with people, but we lack that intimacy, we lack that real relational proximity. And one of the things that's happened as a result of this trend is that you have the um, uprising now of virtual community and social networking sites. How many of you are on uh, a site like Bebo or Facebook or MySpace? Come on now, don't be shy. Yeah, some of you, some of you, that's all right. That's not a sin, there's no confession time here, that's all right. You can do that. And uh, these sites can serve a lot of useful purposes. They're a way, I think, for a lot of people, though, of being able to construct an identity that is not necessarily who we really are, but who we want to project to others and have a lot of control over that so that people don't really see the real us. There was an article uh, I read last year in Time magazine by this guy called Tim Stein, and he writes about social networking sites uh, like Facebook. Uh, just a couple of great quotes for you. He says, I'm sure social networks serve many important functions that improve our lives, like reconnecting us with old friends and finding out if people we used to date are still good looking. <laughs> and social networks all have messaging functions, which would be an excellent way to send information if nobody had invented email. But really, these sites aren't about connecting and reconnecting. They're a platform for self-branding. Until we can build some kind of social network where we can present our true, flawed selves, perhaps some genius can invent something that takes place in a house over dinner with wine, I say we strip down our online communities to just the important parts. With enough venture funding, by which I mean the volunteer services of a dude who knows how to build a website, I hope to launch truesocialstatus.com, on which users are only allowed to submit their name, their occupation, a photo, the square footage of their home, and a list of any celebrities they happen to know. Then other people can vote on a scale of 1 to 100 on how awesome they are. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> That'd be a great site. 
And so this is the whole trend that's going on as people, as they feel more dislocated, there is a yearning, I think, in our hearts still for some kind of community, that we want it, we need to find it. We're community-wired beings, and so we go looking for it in all kinds of places. But we are a society uh, in an epidemic of loneliness. People that just don't have that real community. And I think underneath so much of that is a fear that we have that if you really knew who I really was, you wouldn't like me. I think this is true of so many people. It's the sentiment that came out in Mark's communion devotion. If people really knew who I was, warts and all, then we fear they wouldn't like me. And so there's a need for us to create a super self, a false self, and that's what we project to people. And we take so much time maintaining this false self that we neglect who we really are, and people never really see the deepest part of us. Well, I want to show you how this squares with the picture that we see of what Christian community is supposed to be like, the, the picture we see of what the church is like in the book of Acts. And if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're back in Acts, and we're going to look at a small passage in Acts chapter 4, just a few verses today, that give a picture of how this church at this time, some of the earliest followers of Jesus, how they connected with one another and what their community looked like as it functioned day to day. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. I think the clear teaching of that passage is that you're all supposed to sell your homes and bring the proceeds to the church leaders. This is, I think, the only explanation I've got for that text, and uh, the elders are with me on that. So this, it, it, it's easy, I think, to imagine with passages. I've, I found even as I was preparing this message, you do tend to idealise the Christian community enacts quite a lot, and you, you sort of assume they're, they're sort of a slightly fairy tale group of people. These are somehow super Christians. They've got it all together, and it's not really anything like us today. And it's important to remind ourselves these were very ordinary people. There were a lot of them, but they were ordinary people. Uh, Luke tells us just earlier in the same chapter that the number of people now part of the Christian community by Acts chapter 4 has risen to 5,000 males. So you can pretty safely double that number to get the actual headcount in the church. You've got 10,000 people who have been thrown together in just a few days. It's not like they've had a lot of time to get to know each other. They're from all over the Mediterranean, different countries. They spoke different languages. They didn't have a lot of natural affinity with one another. They were suddenly plunged into this relationship based on their common confession of Jesus Christ and expected to simply make it work. In most situations, almost all situations, if you're putting odds on this kind of community surviving, you would imagine that in just a couple of days, the whole thing would just self-destruct. Just organizationally, if nothing else, how is a community of 10,000 people suddenly going to function? And you would expect there to be a massive amount of friction and fighting and conflict. And there is some of that. In fact, one of the reasons that Luke gives us this uh, story here is that he's setting us up for some stuff that's coming, which is not also positive. But nevertheless, you do see here a community that seems to have an incredible amount of intimacy, 
and commonality, this unity of heart and mind, a willingness on the part of the members in this community to really make serious physical sacrifices for each other, really inconvenience themselves for other people, to make sure that no needs were going unmet, like this family bond that just kicks in and people really watch each other's back and really look out for each other. And you think, how is that possible in a situation like this, in such an unlikely context, that you have that level of unity? And the answer is in verse 33, last half of verse 33, where Luke writes, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. The operating principle in this community was the grace of God. And that's really what makes a church, a local church, categorically different from a soccer club or anything else down the road. Sociologists would look at those two groups and tell you they're basically the same in terms of what they do. Uh, both groups provide a common sense of identity for their members based around certain affinity. They uh, share certain values, a shared history or a shared narrative. They have social norms for the way you act within these groups. And they're both serving this sociological function of giving people identity and community and relationships. And to many people, that's really as far as the church goes. It, it is simply a social club, a place to, to build relationships and meet people. And yet what you see in the book of Acts is there is something marking this community off from every other type of community that may spring up, and that is the operating power of the Holy Spirit in this community. That is ultimately what marks us off from the soccer club down the road, from the craft group, from the neighborhood watch group, whatever, is the power of the Holy Spirit as a community-forming agent moving in and through and among the people of God, something that just simply transcends the natural and the physical realm. And the Spirit as it works in us individually, as it works among us communally, the role of the Holy Spirit is this. What God is doing by His power is creating communities on earth like this one, local churches, that in some way mirror the nature of God Himself. Because we ultimately serve a God who is a social God. Not just a social God in that He's social towards us, but He's social within Himself. He's a relational God. That's why we talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. God is not just a monolithic being. He's not just one God that is static and sterile and detached and non-relational. And in heaven, through all eternity, there is this divine dance going on between Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past to, to eternity future. This wonderful relationship between the three persons of the Trinity of mutual love and self-giving and self-serving and edification and this indwelling of one with another so that God in His very own essence, in His very own being, exemplifies for us what real community is all about. God, in a sense, is the first small group that there ever was, the first life group because He embodies perfect community. And what God is at work doing on planet Earth right now is creating communities that image Him through manifesting that type of community on Earth. That's the work of the Spirit, is to create these little entities, these groups of people that in some way would image God through imaging that communion that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. 
They're the mark and model of what community on earth should be. And of all places where real community, real relationship and real intimacy should be happening, it's in the church. Because we are the people of God, invested with the Spirit of God, witnessing before a waiting and watching world of what real community is supposed to be. This is why Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by what? Your love for one another. Our love for each other is in fact part of our witness. It forms part of our witness to the world so that people would see the way we treat each other, the way we relate to each other, and the depth of relationship that can exist when the Spirit of God brings people together. And they would, through that, as well as our testimony, be drawn to God. It's part of who we need to be before the world. And this is precisely what God is at work doing, even among this community, is creating that unity, creating that relationship, creating that intimacy, so that we would reflect the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and their eternal, harmonious community. So, I guess that means every church is perfect, and there's no bickering, no fighting, and no conflict, and every relationship is perfect harmony, right? End of message, go home. Thanks, amen. There's a little bit more to it than that. There's a great old uh, poem that uh, I came across, which goes like this. Living above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. Living below with the saints we know. Now, that's a different story. <laughs> that's true, eh? When you get into the muck and mire of actual reality, it's all very well to have this wonderful Trinitarian vision of community and focus on the ideals of how it's all supposed to be. And that is legitimate. It's not a fairy tale. It's exactly what God is doing. And yet, there's something that gets in the way of that, which is our own selfishness and our own uh, human fallenness, the fact that we come into relationships with agendas and um, insecurities and weaknesses and idiosyncrasies and things that just make us prickly people and unable sometimes to do really well in relating to each other. We let each other down. Other people let us down. And so often what the church is supposed to be is not really imaged in what the church truly is, which is why, just as the early church in the book of Acts had to work hard at it, we also need to work at it. Community is not something that's just going to happen. It's not something God is just going to come down and zap and make us a perfectly harmonious community. It's something that takes effort. It's something that takes sacrifice. It's something that takes a lot of the time inconvenience. And our role is to partner with what the Holy Spirit is doing in creating that community. And I want to just walk you through briefly uh, three things that I see in, in Acts chapter 4. I've shaped these in terms of commitments that we could actually make as a church to one another, together as a body. And I, I want to, with this, try and be as practical as I can uh, I fear that when, we, when, when people start talking about this stuff so often, it seems to drift into really empty rhetoric. Uh, you know, love one another and care for one another, all this stuff. But what does that mean? Really, day to day, it's so easy just to spout all that stuff out and quote Bible verses at each other. But on the ground level, day to day, your relationships with one another and, and mine, how does this stuff actually get worked out? So let's try and be with all of this as concrete as we possibly can. See if these are the kind of commitments that might resonate with you and that we could possibly own together as a local church and say, yeah, we'll do this because we're serious about recreating this type of Acts 4 community. Firstly, we will be a welcoming community. 
extending love, warmth and friendship to those on the edge of the community. And, and when I say the edge of the community, I mean people that are just tasting this, just investigating the church, just at the early stages of maybe touching this community in some way, maybe slipping in the back door at a meeting on Sunday mornings, perhaps attending a mainly music group, coming to a men's breakfast, an outreach event, just checking things out. What's our response to these people? You think about the first time you came. It's one of the great things about being a church that's only 10 years old, as we can all remember, hopefully, what it was like when you first came. Who talked to you? Did anybody talk to you? Maybe they didn't. Maybe a whole lot of people did. What was that experience like? It's not a bad idea to keep that somehow in your mind, not so that you can hold it against anyone that didn't do the right thing when you came, but so that you can turn around and remember what was important to you, that you might be able to extend that to other people. Because as those that are now here, our responsibility is to turn around and reach those on the fringes and help to draw them in. And one of the most meaningful things, honestly, in the most practical way, is to actually extend that hand of friendship and make an effort to talk to people that are just investigating the church or new visitors, those kinds of things. It's so easy when the church service finishes, the first thing we do instinctively is sort of burrow in and, and, and talk to people we already know in our circle of friends, in our life group, that kind of thing. And I know that's important. These are times when you see people that you don't always see. And, and I'm not saying don't maintain those relationships, but what if the first thing that you did at the close of these meetings was rather than going to people you know, take a look around and see if there are some people that look like they might be a little bit more alone or a little bit more fringy. And often they're hard to spot. They might have people around them. But just have an eye out. Just make yourself aware of what you can do to go and to speak and to say something to these people. And sometimes it's a little bit awkward, I know. The magic rule is don't ask people if this is their first Sunday. Because I've done it and it's, the person's been coming for five years which makes you feel stupid. So just ask, how long have you been coming? I find that's quite good because then you can have the one week or the five years and it doesn't really matter. There's a little bit of awkwardness with this. Of course there is. It might not be the most natural thing to bowl up to someone you don't know. But friends, this is what makes us different from the world. This is what actually we take upon ourselves as followers of Christ to say we're going to have an eye out for those on the edges and we're each going to shoulder the responsibility because whose responsibility is it? Just mine? Just the staff? just a, a dedicated visitor connection team, and we have one of those. But in reality, the visitor connection team should be all of us. We all sign up for the visitor connection team the day we come through the doors and make this our church home. We take that responsibility of helping draw others in. And so be someone that can make a habit of extending love and warmth and, and a smile and just engaging conversation to someone that is on the edges. Help to draw them in. Have a conversation with them. Invite them along to your life group. Go and have lunch with them afterwards. Do something that's going to make them feel welcome. This is part of us being a friendly and welcoming community so that no one would be able to leave these doors on Sunday or at any other context where we meet together as a church and say, well, that wasn't a very friendly bunch. That wasn't a very friendly church. There's always going to be people that fall through the cracks, I know, but it, it is your heart and mine that we would be a church that extends that friendship, whether or not it's reciprocated, that we'd be warm and friendly and welcoming and embracing. It's a value we have to own. It's a value that each of us have to own. So we want to be a welcoming community. Next, we want to be a connecting community, developing relationships where we can be real 
and authentic with each other. And I think these are the kind of relationships that if we're really honest with each other, we all long for. The kind of relationships that were expressed in that song that Anna sung. Someone that we have who is on their knees praying for us, who is watching our back, who is lifting us up before God, who is defending us before others. And the reality is so few of us have those kinds of relationships. There's something in us that cries out for that. In a quiet moment, it's that tug of our heart that just desires that type of friend, desires that type of relationship. And many of you I know are, even in a room this sort, you're full of uh, all kinds of people and you've got hangout friends, but sometimes that can feel so superficial. And there's a deep desire to go deeper, to have someone who I can be closer with, who I can really disclose things about myself to and take off the mask with and stop pretending and start getting real and start being authentic. And those relationships can't happen in these times. You're not going to develop that friendship with 300 people, nor should you. But they happen as we get down into smaller clusters of people, as you reduce the number down and down and down so that it's just a few. And, and in terms of real intimacy and closeness, maybe just one or two. And maybe in an ideal church, those clusters just naturally form. And people just gel with one another, and, and so they, they're able to form those relationships. But experience tells us that's not always the way. You just leave it to anarchy. Some will form, but many will still continue to be marginalized. And so what we do here at Shaw to try and foster this and be intentional about creating this type of community is we have life groups. And these are not a cure-all. You can't think that just because you get into a life group that your problems are solved, and the next day you're going to wake up and have 10 friends that are the best friends you've ever had. But they can help. They take a bit of effort from us to get into that sort of context. But when you are there, you have, to begin with, a social circle, people that you at least recognize and know and can begin to form friendships with. And when you come on Sundays, you can sit with them and, and you recognize and have people to hang out with. But more deeply than that, we want these to be environments where we start fostering those really deep and valuable and meaningful relationships. Contexts where you can really love and be loved by other people, where you can know others deeply and be known by them, and for that still to be okay, where you can serve other people and be served by them, where you can celebrate with them and, and you be celebrated. Now, I know this doesn't always happen all the time in life groups because they're full of imperfect people, but this is the goal, this is the, the thing that we want these clusters, these life groups to be. I have a great life group in this church. It's led by Teo down here, and uh, we get together each week, as most groups do, there's about 10 of us or so, and most groups, including ours, include some combination of food, uh, a lot of food, and uh, what else? That's about it. Food and some uh, just hanging out time and looking at the, at the Bible, studying the Bible. It's not like a seminary classroom where you're expected to know all the answers. In fact, a lot of it is journeying together and talking about how this washes out in our lives so that you can take something like this that we talk about on Sunday mornings and really make it practical and interact with it in these groups. Prayer. Uh, for one another, uh, just hanging out outside of that group time and just doing life together. We went to a 2020 cricket match this last week as a small group. It helped that one of our small group members was umpiring the 2020 match, but we went along and that was a great time just hanging out. Those times are, I think, just as valuable as any times that you might all be uh, engaged in some deep, deep theological debate. It's just building those connections and those relationships. And I remember one time last year, 
uh, Teo led us through this process of just um, talking about what we wanted to get out of this group for the year and where we were with it and that kind of thing. It was early in the year and you wouldn't really have expected to happen what did happen. But one by one, people just started opening up. And when that happens, you just realize how rich it is and how much you miss that in everyday life. How much so often we stay at this pseudo community level. And, and people just started really being honest, not just spilling their guts for the sake of spilling their guts, but it was one of those moments that you just wanted to hold on to it. And you felt, man, I can be, this is safe. I can be real. Um, these people are being real with me. And this is what life groups are about. And not every week's like that. And I don't know whether you'd want every week to be that deep, because that's intense. But some are. And then some are lighter and, and, and just, you know, more, more, more fun or whatever. But these are the sorts of groups that we want to cultivate here at Shaw. And I want to encourage you, if you're not yet in one, think seriously about it. It is a commitment. It is a night of the week that you'd be potentially uh, giving up. But if you rely on these meetings alone to really build community, it's going to be a long and tough road, and, and you may not get there because this is just a big enough group that that's, it's not going to happen that way. It's why you see in the book of Acts, breaking down to smaller levels, meeting in people's homes. Not just, I think, because they didn't have the bigger auditorium like this to meet in, but because they knew the value of being together, eating together, sharing a meal together, which they did every week before they even took communion, and through that, fostering real intimacy and real transparency with one another. You have a life groups brochure in your bulletin today, and I'd encourage you to have a look. See if there's a group that might suit you. Think about making that commitment for the new year because it will help you, and not just for what you can get, but what you can give, and to be there for others, to be real with them and encourage them in their own walk. The final commitment that uh, I want to suggest to you, we will be a caring community, looking after each other, in practical ways. Go back to Acts 4 just one more time. There's that phrase I read out before about the grace of God. Let me read it to you again, because some of your translations word it slightly differently from mine. Um, in the TNIV it says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. Uh, some translations break those two uh, thoughts up so that it reads, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, full stop, there was no needy person among them. So those two thoughts are separated. But I think the TNIV gets it right when it joins them together and talks about God's grace being so powerfully at work that there was no needy persons among them. And it ties God's grace to the meeting of real practical needs. Because so often, friends, we can leave grace as this vague theological concept that we all talk about but have no idea what it actually means. It's just this abstract esoteric idea. And we need to appreciate that grace is manifest in the most concrete and practical and tangible ways as we extend real love to each other by helping to meet each other's needs, being there for each other, watching each other's back, extending practical assistance where someone needs it, that we would be this kind of community where there is no needy person among them. You think about where that's even possible for us to be that. Imagine if we could say that. We're a church where there is no needy person among us. Is it possible? Or is it just a pipe dream? Because if it's something that's just locked back in time, then there's really not much point doing what we're doing. The truth is, though, these followers of Jesus worship the same God we do. 
They testified to the same risen Lord Jesus that we do. They had the same power of the same Holy Spirit working in them that we do. And it's incumbent upon us, I think, to seek to recreate the same Spirit in our own congregation by the power of the Spirit that they had, where needs would be met. Now, the, the million-dollar question, though, is this. Whose responsibility is it to do that? Because there's a traditional mindset that kicks in here, and maybe this is how you've been raised in, in another church context, where it's basically up to the minister or the pastor or the bishop or whatever to be the one who meets all the needs of all the people. Or perhaps it's the responsibility of a centralized eldership or presbytery or, or whatever to dispense care and ministry to the masses. And so everybody looks to one person or two people, or whatever, and they are the elite few charged with caring for all of us. I want to tell you that not only is that completely impractical, because there's no way I can do it, I'll just be upfront with that, that is just so unmanageable for me, you wouldn't believe it. But also, I think more importantly, it's not biblical. It's just not the model that we see in the scriptures. Where the church is described as a family, it's described as a body, with every member having a part, every person being an equal, valued member and an equal right to sit around the table of the Lord. This is what the Protestant Reformation was designed to move us away from, that separation between clergy and laity. They broke down those walls and said, no, we're the priesthood of all believers. We're all in this together and we collectively share the responsibility for ministry. Ministry is something that is done in and through and to and by and for the members of the faith community, not by one for everyone else. We are all ministers, we are all servants, we are all pastors, one to another. And that type of caregiving culture across the church is one that we must seek to develop day in and day out. Which means if you see a need, you may well be best placed to meet it. And they can be the most simple and practical of things. Often it's just being with someone, praying with someone, hanging out with them. Maybe if it's a bigger need than that, take it to your life group. These are the primary avenues for pastoral care that we have in the church. We don't have a centralized system where, where it's just one team doing it all. We have life groups around the church. We have ministry teams. These are the avenues through which caregiving is designed to happen. It's a very decentralized model. And it means that where you have needs or where you see others have needs, it's our responsibility. You be the one that gets a couple of others together and says, hey, I see Joe over here struggling. Maybe next week in our, in our life group, we could pray for him. And maybe we could do something practical for him. Maybe it's food, maybe it's groceries, maybe it's transportation, maybe it's babysitting. I don't know what it is, but just think about it within your own context because you are in these clusters. You know the people, you see the needs, you are the best placed people to meet those needs. It's a burden that we all have to share, and we should share. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. And there might be bigger needs that are beyond the scope of a life group, and that's fine. At those times, we have a pastoral care coordinator, Debbie Taylor, and she can help to provide resources if there's counseling needs, if there's serious physical or emotional needs. Of course, you don't just try and just solve these problems together. You take to someone else, and we have avenues to do that. But your first port of call is within these clusters of people. So, you're probably connecting the dots already. The other side of this equation is if you're not in a group, it's, it's pretty hard for us to provide that care. We'll try, we'll do our best, we genuinely will, but I've got to tell you that it, 
when, it's when people are outside of these clusters that pastoral care struggles along in the church. And I would say to you, if at all possible, find your way into community in this church. Find your way into a ministry team where you can serve and therefore have a social circle around you. Find your way into a life group because there you are best placed to be surrounded by people that will know you well, to know the needs that you have and best placed to meet those needs when they come along. No matter where you are, this is something that we've just got to start owning as a church at a fundamental level. This desire to love each other and care for each other and extend that grace. Because it's amazing to me the way sometimes people can talk about the church like they're not part of it. You know, why doesn't the church do this? And I wish the church would do that. And why, you know, the church should really do something about it. And you want to say to people, unless you have just renounced your faith, you are part of the church. You know, have you just become a pagan or are you, what's the story here? Because we are the church. It's not, don't narrow down that concept of church just to the leaders. Own it. Feel it. Let it sit with you. You are as much part of the church as anyone else. So when that question comes, try my best, gently, lovingly, to put it back on people and say, well, if if you are a part of this church, then perhaps that's a need you could respond to or, or at least get the ball rolling on. Take that responsibility together. As we wrap up this morning, I want to um, ask Janelle to come up just for a second and just give you an example here of how this looks in real life. Um, we want to, as I say, do everything we can to make this practical and put, put feet on this idea. And Janelle is someone that's gone through a really difficult time last year, and I've just asked her to come and share a little bit of her story with us. Thanks, Janelle. said a second, but it'll probably be a bit more than that. Um, I'm just up here this morning to share with you my experience as being a part of the community of believers and what that's meant to me, especially during a really hard time in my life. Um, I grew up in the church. I'm a PK, which is pastor's kid, and I'm proud of that. Um, But it means that um, church was just, has always been part of of our family's life. And um, I've understood the significance of uh, being involved in church and being an active serving member. And I've even understood that concept of, of what the body of Christ means and, and how the body of Christ is supposed to represent Christ, particularly to people in need. Um, but I've never fully felt or seen the significance of that. Until I became that person in need. Um, my dad passed away around five months ago and that was a huge shock to our family. It was unexpected and it was sudden and uh, dad was the head of the home in, in the true sense of the word and he was our spiritual leader and he was just the rock in our family and, um, and he was really my favorite person on earth. And uh, three weeks before that, Michael had um, asked Dad for his blessing to marry me. And so I was in a a great place. I was feeling strong and just excited about the future. And for those three weeks, that was the happiest of my life. And coming from that place 
to the day that my brother called from LA and, and told me about dad. It was just, it just stripped me of all of that strength and I felt crippled spiritually, emotionally, even physically. I just felt crippled. And that's where the church really stepped in. And I remember when I think back to that day, and it was within the hour that I was surrounded by Christian friends. I didn't have any family. They were all over in the States. Um, but even more significant was when I think back, Reuben was there. And I don't know what he had to drop and what he had to cancel to be there, but he was there. And he was there to tell me that my church family was praying for me and that there were people all around the church who cared and supported me and just were praying for the practical things that I would get the next flight out, that Michael would be able to come with me. And I know that it went beyond this church to the, the greater body. There were people everywhere praying. And I tell you, when the church unites together with a common purpose, it's powerful. And you really see the power of God. And we did. When I think back to it, we, we really saw God moving. When I arrived in L.A. to my parents' home, I saw that again. I saw the body of Christ in action. And my mom was just surrounded by people in her church. And they were doing whatever they could. I know we often don't know what to do in times of people's grief, but people were just doing what they could. They were bringing meals. They were... You know, there were flowers, there were cards. And I remember that next day, unfortunately, there was a huge plumbing problem at the house. And um, it just required a lot of work. And there were about 10 to 15 men that just dropped their regular jobs. And they came and they were digging up pipes. It was the middle of the LA heat wave. And they were just there digging. You know, that was what they were, they were doing. And significant our people in, in those practical ways doing things that we just couldn't have the strength to think about doing. And every little thing helped. We got tons of flowers, but I remember the next day the flowers arriving from this church. And for me that just said that my church back here was still thinking of me and just, just caring for me. And it felt like this was you know, my family taking care of me. It was hard to come back to New Zealand, to leave my mom and leave my family. But I was so glad that I was part of a life group and a life group that is authentic and we were real with each other and honest. And I know it could have been awkward, probably was awkward for them to know exactly what to say or do. But again, they were just there and they were meeting consistently and I was there and they were just sensitive to my needs and just taking care of me. I think when I think about the difference between the church, the body and other community groups out there, I think the most significant thing is is that um, it just has carried me through. It doesn't take away the pain. I don't think anything does. But it's kept me moving. And I think the body of Christ is a good analogy. It's like if you have a broken foot, 
The foot's still broken, it's still in pain, but the body finds a way to carry it forward. And that's what this church has done for me. I knew I had the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I knew that God hadn't forsaken me. And I didn't question his goodness. But that knowledge at that time wasn't enough. And I needed, and I still need, to be reassured physically and visibly of God's love for me and God's love on earth. And I just want to thank you as a church because that's what you've done for me. I've experienced the power of the body of Christ in action. And every single thing counts. Every, every one of you who have just asked how I am, who have sent me a card, a letter, it matters and it's counted. And in those moments where I don't feel like carrying on, you've been there holding me close to the heart of God and just showing me Christ's love in a tangible way. So thank you. Hey, let's pray for Janelle while she's up here. Father, I just thank you for Janelle. I just thank you for her willingness to share her heart with us. Thank you, Lord, for what it looks like when the church really is the church. We just thank you for that wonderful picture. And I ask, Lord, that her testimony and her faith and the support that your people have provided for her would spur all of us on to continue being that kind of body and that kind of family and realizing that vision of being a, a real caregiving and need-meeting congregation. So we just lift her to you, and I pray for continued strength for her as she takes one day at a time with you, continuing to grieve the passing of her dad and continuing to remember him and, and celebrate him and continue to move on with the love and support of Michael and her life group and her whole church family. We just lift her to you and pray for her in Jesus' name. Amen.